Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, has the government mismanaged the relationship with China? The continuing politics of coronavirus? And it's a hard job, but who'd want to be an opposition leader during a time of crisis? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, mad, bad and dangerous to know. It's been a year since the Liberal National Party won the election and a lot has happened during that time. We've had floods, fires, pandemics and the collapse of the economy. Anniversaries and birthdays are irrelevant in politics, but the media has been celebrating Scott Morrison's unlikely election victory so much that they've overlooked so many of the government errors and mistakes. Parliament isn't sitting on a regular basis, which isn't allowing enough scrutiny of the government's actions and allegations of corrupt behaviour, and now diplomatic mistakes are being made. In this latest episode, there's been some old-fashioned China bashing and political self-aggrandising on the world stage, where Morrison used a megaphone to claim Australia was leading the way on a weapons inspector's type of investigation into China's role in the origins of COVID-19. China, of course, feels that it's been humiliated and has retaliated by slapping an 80% tariff on Australian barley imports. It seems like Australia has brought along a plastic fork to a gunfight, and it's the local barley producers that are going to pay the price for the government's ineptitude. I note that amongst the uh, right-wing commentary, and I don't mean all of them, of course, but uh, among the, uh, the more unhinged ones, there's been a little bit of dog-whistling. It's okay to be against China and Australia can stand up to China. Partly there's an anti-communist thing and partly I think there is a racial component to this, that the Chinese government isn't as strong as a good, solid European or American government. For all of the many faults of the Chinese government, it's quite stable at the moment. And you annoy your trade partners at your peril. And trade is a funny thing. If you if you only traded with the nations you 100% agreed with and whose policies you fully supported, you'd have very, very few trading partners. And I think, too, looking at the record of a place like Australia with its record on refugees, with its record on human rights abuses with Indigenous peoples, there'd be a lot of countries who wouldn't trade with us. So in international diplomacy, there is a blind eye turned to certain practices and and beliefs so that the trade can happen. So I don't quite get why people are pushing for a trade war with China. Trump lost the trade war. And it's almost as if Trump having lost it will send Australia in to see if they can, can win a much smaller economy, which is more reliant than America is on China. And China is very reliant on America. We are more reliant. Let's see how we'll go in a war, a trade war with that. It's not going to be good. And there is a bit of a background to this, of course. China believed that Australia was price dumping its barley into the Chinese market. It actually launched an investigation 15 months ago. In diplomatic circles, what countries tend to do, especially larger countries, they'll keep particular decisions that they want to make up their sleeve and they'll decide when the best time for them to release that is. And there's other issues going on as well where 
Donald Trump, he wants American barley producers to access the China market. So China makes this decision now to slap a 80% tariff on Australian barley producers. It just decided that it's the right time to do it in retaliation for a decision that was made about a weapons inspector type investigation into their role in the origins of COVID-19. Look what's happening now. US barley producers have now got access into the China market, which will help Donald Trump in an election year. Wouldn't surprise me if part of the Morrison government's strategy here is to help Trump be re-elected because it's a government that they have a lot in common. They have very similar policy aims. They have very similar philosophies. Now, we have argued in the past and will argue in the future that these philosophies and policy aims are disastrous and incompetent. But putting that to the side, they are philosophical allies at the very least. And it wouldn't surprise me if part of it is to try and help Donald Trump be re-elected. His re-election isn't as guaranteed as it was three months ago. And so a boost to American barley farmers in key agricultural seats might be the type of thing that gets him over the line. In the lead-up to the 1996 federal election, Paul Keating did say that when the government changes, the country changes as well. He said that as a warning to the Australian electorate, just to be careful when they lodge their vote, didn't make any difference. The Liberal National Coalition, led by John Howard, they won that election, and true to Keating's words, the country did change, and it has changed quite dramatically since that time. But when the American government changed, not only does the American country change, but the world changes as well. Whatever the political ideology is of the American government, that tends to strongly influence the world in economic matters, geopolitics. And while it might take a little while for it to happen, those influences permeate through to the rest of the world. Governments of a similar ideology tend to support each other within the world domain, and it wouldn't be surprising to me if if the Morrison government is supporting the Trump administration so that they can continue their relationship into the future and have the favour repaid in other ways after Trump does get re-elected, if that's what does end up happening. That's probably another reason why Australia has pushed so hard on China. They wouldn't have done it otherwise. And Australia, at least over the last seven years, has tried to dominate weird things that can have no real impact. It reminds me of Tony Abbott's push to find the Malaysian Airlines flight and spending hundreds of millions of dollars on trying to find a broken needle in a haystack. This is the same type of thing. Why Australia would push for an investigation that isn't going to lead to any international recognition. Later data, independent data, has shown that the wet markets may not have been the source after all. And and I'm not saying that as a definite, but there's been a few people who've pointed to other areas of the world even. We know that coronavirus was in Italy and France at least a month before it was supposed to have been. So that throws into doubt the source. It may not kill the source completely as, you know, the evidence after an investigation may still find that it is the wet markets of China, of Wuhan province, but it's not a a guaranteed thing. There, There is that element of doubt. 
The last time there was a major pandemic was in 1918. It was known as the Spanish flu, even though it didn't originate in Spain. And historical virologists have traced it back to the northern China region and industrial zones in the United States. We don't know where COVID-19 originated from. It could have come from anywhere. Certainly the first major outbreak was in Wuhan in China. That's undeniable, but the origins of the virus are actually unclear. So it's understandable for China to resist an investigation where they are blamed until proven otherwise. As it stands, China has fully supported an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19 managed by the World Health Organization. And it's an inquiry pushed by the European Union, not Australia, as the Australian media keeps telling us. And like any other country in its position, China doesn't want to be told that blame is the starting point of, a, of an independent investigation. It, it is a natural thing to want to avoid blame, particularly if you're not to blame. The short answer is at the moment we know very, very little about this virus. Uh, we're still not even sure if you're immune from it once you've had it. As it stands at the moment, they're thinking too that you're not, that you can get it again, but that's still not sure. It looks like there are long-term effects on your lungs and other organs. We don't quite know who transmits it. One of the arguments for opening schools back up is that it doesn't seem to transmit child to child. But there's other evidence that suggests that it might. Children have caught this. Young children have caught it. Teenagers have caught it. And of course, once you're about 16, 17, you're basically an adult. It's The numbers of children have been much less. And we don't quite know if children transmit it to adults yet. Well, you're right. There's so many unknowns about COVID-19. But as we've reported in previous podcasts, Australia is managing the spread of coronavirus very well, and it's down to 569 active cases nationally. These are low numbers, and of course, the government will want to open up the economy and the society to a threshold that's acceptable to the community, both in terms of the number of infections and any deaths that result from a rise of infections. And that, that's something that governments would need to take responsibility for. Australia is only three months into this pandemic, but there's already talk about reducing Australia's reliance on Chinese manufacturing, even though successive governments in Australia have reduced the manufacturing base quite substantially over the past 30 years, especially the Liberal Party since it returned to office in 2013. But Government investment in manufacturing could be a good idea, but with such a, an ideologically driven government and one that seeks nepotism rather than quality, it's questionable whether it would produce outcomes that would be in the public interest. It, the so-called COVID-19 commission that you would expect would be filled with epidemiologists, virologists, maybe general practice, doctors, nurses, other allied health professionals has as its head a mining executive. I can't see how his qualifications are relevant to this type of commission. And he's being paid an enormous amount of money. Everyone else on the board's getting $2,000, I think. He's getting 200000 And it's not going to get us $200,000 worth of answers. I note that two of the industries that stayed open that and that should have shut down, really, were mining and horse racing. 
you know, the, the vested interests of big money. Okay, mining is a big industry, but it's not as big as tourism. Tourism has been completely shut down. Tourism makes up a much larger percentage of the GDP than mining does. Now, I know that they're trying to open up tourism early, but it's not worth the money to have the disease spread for another 6 to 12 to 18 months. And these are also the sort of issues that develop when you don't have parliamentary scrutiny. When parliament doesn't sit, you haven't got the ability for MPs to scrutinise what the government is doing. That's why you get a head of a power company or a head of a mining company end up being the head of a COVID-19 task force. And, and that's why it's essential that parliament does return to its normal sitting as soon as possible. There's all these allegations related to sports rorts. And we actually had some journalists saying, well, is the public over this? Has the public forgotten about this? We've got more important issues that we need to deal with at the moment. And certainly COVID-19 and the management of it, the post-COVID-19 economy, these are massive things that have to be managed. But that doesn't mean that you just put corruption to the side and just let it wallow. Yeah, not at all. This is the time where we all have a bit extra time because we're not at work uh, or working from home. Uh, but this is the time that you can dig into questionable things. Now, the sports rights may be the most honest and open thing that have ever happened. The evidence we've seen so far does not suggest that, but hey, innocent until proven guilty, it needs to be put through. In fact, they're guilty because we saw that email the other day which uh, basically said the Prime Minister had to sign off on everything where he had no prior knowledge to it. We know that Bridget McKenzie was advised not to make these calls because they were highly illegal. This is the time where the scrutiny has to be ramped up because it's important to the healthy functioning of democracy. And what the Morrison-Turnbull-Abbott government has shown us is that democracy is a paper-thin structure that is easily dismantled when you're not looking. I guess also in the absence of parliament not sitting, that's where a strong and critical media comes into action as well. To be fair to the mainstream media, they have covered the sports rorts affairs quite extensively. It's just that there's not that much traction or there's not much follow-up with their questioning. Uh, the China issue last week, they've been running very, very strongly behind the government as well with this recent decision by China to slap an 80% tariff on barley imports. It's almost like they're just running a campaign supportive of the government action instead of interrogating this entire issue, looking at the background to it, looking at why this has happened and looking at the politics behind it. But all we're pretty much getting are press releases that are promoted by the government. I saw an article somewhere where... Barley was dismissed as a ingredient that isn't used in very much and we don't we don't need it. Yet that five billion dollars over the next five years, I'm sure, will be very helpful to the barley farmers of Australia. You know, maybe they can transition out to something else, but that's not an easy task. Well the government's response was to to those barley producers was to simply pick up the phone and go somewhere else. Now, it's not like you can just pick up the phone to Nigeria or to America or Argentina and say, look, we've got all this leftover barley that we can't sell to China anymore. Do you want to take it? And it's not like they'll say, yeah, sure, bring it in tomorrow. Like it's a long process that you've got to go through. You've got to develop relationships with those countries, relationships with the government. You've got to sign deals. It's not like it just happens overnight. The average trade uh, contract takes about 20 years to hammer out. 
which was a fact that went very quiet in Britain during the Brexit debate with 850 trade deals to negotiate. It's complex. Often the countries that want a particular crop are already getting it from somewhere else and don't need any more. And in any case, it might be worth $5 billion to China, but there's no way Nigeria or Brazil or the Czech Republic, just to pick three countries at random, are going to say, yes, we'll take that for what you were going to sell it to China for. They're going to want less. And how much less will depend on the strength of negotiation from the Australian side. Oh, exactly. And it also gets down to those agreements or the existing agreements that those countries have. It's a question of whether they need those products, but also if they accept barley from Australia, well, what can they export into the Australian market? So there's always this different level of negotiations that have to take place. And for the Australian government to say to those barley producers that have lost their $1.5 billion a year export market, well, just pick up the phone and go somewhere else, that's an insult to those barley producers and it also shows a lack of understanding of how all of these deals are arranged. And you'd expect much better from the Australian government. There was a point where the Australian government had one of the very best foreign services in the world. The foreign services of every country tend to be the best people, the top graduates, the smartest people. I don't know what happened. I have noticed that over the past couple of weeks, whenever Scott Morrison is questioned about particular issues such as the sports rorts affair or corruption within his government, that seems to be Morrison's Achilles heel. As, as you can imagine, it would be for any politician. But he has this reaction where he just deflects the question, moves on to some something else, or he just says that he's already answered the question. He just does not like being questioned on anything that's going to cause him political embarrassment. And I thought that there seemed to be a shift in the, the media interrogation of Scott Morrison as well. They realise the things that are a chink in his armour. It's mainly in the independent media that they've started to ask the same sort of questions as well. I'm not sure where it will lead to, but at least questions are being asked of Scott Morrison and, and his performance. Anyone who's looked closely at the Morrison government has not been impressed. And it's a different level to, say, the Howard government, which was very flawed, the Rudd government, which had its flaws, and the Gillard government, which had its flaws. They were governments that, at the very base, were run by competent and intelligent individuals. This is not an endorsement of any of those governments necessarily, but John Howard knew how to run the government. Whether you liked how he ran that or not is a different issue. Kevin Rudd knew how to run the government. Again, whether you liked it or not is a different issue. And Julia Gillard. Rudd and Gillard had problems with their party and problems with the media, but the day-to-day running of parliamentary procedure was done to a competent level. We haven't seen that. Tony Abbott couldn't run the government at all. Malcolm Turnbull couldn't run it. And Scott Morrison has somehow been worse. The corruption is systemic and open. The nepotism is insanely crazy. It's one thing to put a union person on a board where you could argue, well, they're representing the workers who will be or even a lawyer, you know, a liberal lawyer who can give a fundamental breakdown of the law. 
and it's hard to sort of argue nepotism there, even though maybe 50 or 60% of the decision was we owe them a favour or it's my brother-in-law or my sister's best friend or what have you. The nepotism and cronyism we've had over the last seven or eight years has been open and stupid and has nearly always ended in another failure. It's really the failure of the mainstream media. And I'm talking as a whole, not individual journalists who don't push this stuff hard enough or decide on a whim that people have had enough of it. Papers aren't selling, but it's not because they run the same boring stories. It's because they don't run the same stories. They're not telling the stories that need to be told. And you know, they're running on apathy. And apathy is not a good place to be. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, who'd want to be an opposition leader during a time of crisis? There's no point in asking, you'll get no reply. And just It's always difficult for opposition parties to remain relevant during a time of crisis and there's not much for them to do except to offer their support to the government of the day, try to be constructive and useful and hope that at some point in the near future they'll be able to gain some traction for their actions and messages. The Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, he was actually preferred Prime Minister several months ago but since the coronavirus commenced he's been largely relegated to a bit part role in national politics, has been rarely seen, been ignored by the media and because Parliament is rarely sitting these days he's been denied a national platform. Labor does risk being swept away during this pandemic and I mean politically But is it a case of just waiting for some sort of normality to return to politics, if that ever does happen? Or is it a matter for the Labor Party to start being more proactive and developing political tactics to work around the current political environment? I don't say this easily because I think this was one of the worst times of opposition we've ever had. But the Tony Abbott approach of saying no to absolutely everything might be the approach to go to here. Now, when Tony Abbott did it, it was terrible. I thought that it showed that he wouldn't be a very good prime minister. I was right. I think that it led to a complete undermining of the structures and philosophies of the Liberal Party and the structures and philosophies of the Australian Parliament. I do think that opposition parties should oppose. Of course, you know, and that's their job, but that very hardline no to everything had some effectiveness. I wonder if Labor should just take that approach while they're developing their own policies and say no to everything, which would get Mr Albanese noticed. I think it would get him a lot of publicity. And as Oscar Wilde said, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. Even a lot of negative press can't be any worse than the lukewarm nothing press he's getting at the moment. 
and it would show a little bit of that fighting Tories attitude that we haven't seen a lot of. When he went up against Bill Shorten, he said, I fight Tories. It's what I do. And that was, you know, a really great thing for a Labour leader to say at that time. But he hasn't been seen or he hasn't shown much of it. And I think we need to get back to the to that. I'm hesitant to say the real Anthony, but you know what I mean. Well, we're not exactly sure what the real Anthony Albanese is. And well, we have to point out from the from the outset, it is difficult being an opposition leader, and that's for that's at the federal level, state or territory level. It's very hard to maintain relevance. All of the focus is on on the government of the day, and that's the way that it should be. But at some point, there has to be a case where people start taking notice of what an opposition leader is doing or an opposition party is doing as well. And I accept that this is probably not the best time to start making all your all of your key announcements and start getting traction for your key political messaging. But even still, it seems like something else needs to, needs to happen. Now, the, the reason why I've brought this issue up is that there was a very clouded message about reducing the job seeker payments. Um, a few days ago, Anthony Albanese made an announcement that the job seeker payment should be reduced, but not to the levels of Newstart, which is almost unlivable. That's only $40 a day. But the whole message became a convoluted message and resulted in negative headlines that Albanese wants to reduce the job seeker payments. Of course, if we look at it economically, that's probably the most sensible thing to do long term. But because it resulted in negative headlines, well, maybe it does get back to playing the political game rather than doing the sensible thing. There needs to be more nuanced or more careful messaging. They need to go about it in a different way. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what it is, whether it is that approach where you're absolutely oppositional to absolutely everything, which is the Tony Abbott style of opposition. That resulted in Tony Abbott leading the Liberal National Party into government. But the problem in that case was that their behaviour in opposition extended into their behaviour in, into government. And of course, the, the way that you come into government is important as well. The great opposition leaders, who included people like Gough Whitlam, Malcolm Fraser, John Howard, all were attack dogs, but all had policies. All were ready for government once they got it, more or less. Whitlam was ready. I'm not sure that a lot of his cabinet were. And John Curtin was a great opposition leader. Robert Menzies was a great opposition leader. Now, some of them went on to become great prime ministers. Others weren't so good at it. But they were able to balance that need to oppose plus that need to show the alternative of not only we're against this, but this is what we would do and this is what we will do. It's a hard balance to pull off, but that's what you have to do. You have to be part attack dog, but also part statesman. Albanese has said that he wants to be a constructive opposition, offer support to the to the government to proceed during this time of crisis. That's all well and good. That's all very sensible. But if we compare the behaviour of Albanese and Labor Party federally with the behaviour of the Liberal opposition in Victoria, the Liberal opposition in WA as well. Both of those states in Victoria and Western Australia and Queensland for that matter, they've got Labor governments in place. 
the Liberal opposition, they've been attacking all of those three state premiers virtually from day one about the, the management of the coronavirus, about opening up the borders, uh, about doing this or that. There's also a Member of Parliament, Tim Smith, in Victoria. He's been absolutely maniacal in his pursuit of Daniel Andrews. And it's, quite, it's been a quite unhinged attack, but people are starting to listen to him. People are starting to take more notice of what he's he's saying. It's all that process about trying to claw back into the political game during the time of crisis. It is unhinged. It's unacceptable as far as the public interest is concerned, but it works for them politically. And that I guess that's what the dilemma is. Do you behave like an absolute git to get your party back into the political game or you, do you do the constructive thing that's in the public interest? I think there's definitely short-term gain. But the ratbag character rarely gets the centre and when they do, they never keep it. You know, from Billy Hughes to Eddie Ward to Tony Abbott, uh, W.C. Wentworth, the the ratbags, and I'm clumping in wildly different people here, but they were marginalised from their parties for their outspoken opinions. And the ratbags are important in policy. They're important as a part of the public debate, even if it is to say, yep, this is too far, this is where we do not want to go. But when they get centre stage, they rarely keep it. They, they are fringe characters. This is what happened to Tony Abbott. He was a ratbag and never really grew out of that in the way that, say, Paul Keating did. Paul Keating grew into the role of Prime Minister in a way that Tony Abbott never did. Now, I've been looking around for examples of opposition leaders that can be effective, uh, can act in the public interest and also keep the government of the day to account. And I've been looking at Jodie McKay's performance in New South Wales. She's the leader of the Labor opposition party in New South Wales. And there's so much material to work with. There's been the management of the Ruby Princess incident. There's been the New March incident as well, where a number of people have died in an aged care facility. Now, she's got a very good media presence. She was actually a newsreader and, and a journalist as well, and that's a large advantage. But she's also got a tactic of interviewing experts from the field, such as the epidemiologist Bill Botel. It's almost like she's letting them speak the words that she would normally speak. It's quite good. It's effective. It keeps up the pressure. It's not like the painful rubbish that we've been seeing from Tim Smith or Andrew Lamming or Peter Dutton on the federal field, but it's a good, effective way of keeping good pressure on the opposition and making sure that the government of the day is kept to account. So, that's a good strategy, but there's also the engagement with the mainstream media, how an opposition leader or an opposition party engages with the media, and the media itself is going to go through a lot of fundamental changes in the new economy of the future. I'm wondering if we're seeing the death throes of the, the, the media domination we've had, and by media domination, I mean the domination by one or two parties. I know that Fox is a billion dollars in debt and I know that people are running away from their um, uh, subscriptions to Fox. I know that the Australian newspaper is in a lot of financial trouble and I don't think it's ever been a profitable paper. The other, the cross-subsidies it was getting from the Herald Sun, the Daily Telegraph, the uh, Adelaide Advertiser aren't enough to keep it propped up. 
in the way that they used to. The Sydney Morning Herald is in a lot of strife. Um, And I'm wondering if we're just seeing the last final desperate kicks from a dying old-style industry. Quite a lot of papers have uh, folded since the world went into lockdown internationally. I know that uh, the government poured money into regional papers to try and keep them propped up. And, you know, it is important to have a local regional source of news. But I'm wondering if with the internet, these things will become more organic. The advantage to the big companies is that they often had the money for deep and prolonged investigation when they chose to do it. And a lot of good journalistic work got done by all companies, even the ones that we don't like. But we have to be fair and we have to be and we have to acknowledge good work when good work is done. And we may lose some of that in the short term while we work out how do you do these long prolonged investigations. I know Independent Australia and the Australian Independent Media Network throw as many resources as they can into longer investigations and they do a tremendous job, particularly given their budgets. Here at New Politics, we're more opinion, but that's important too. Well, all all of those different news avenues and news outlets, all of those smaller independent websites, it's it's an aggregation of all of that information that gets out there. There's been quite a few investigations that have been produced by Independent Australia that have leapfrogged into the mainstream media as well. They don't get the credit of that and they're extremely annoyed about that, but at least the material does get out there. The the Barnaby Joyce issues in the 2017 by-election that they had there, the mainstream media was largely silent about that. Australian Independent, there's another website, True Crime Weekly, and they announced all of this information about Barnaby Joyce, his misdemeanours, the background to his resignation. There's all these different aspects that were being put out there. A lot of that information did come out six months later. It was on the back of the investigations that were produced by smaller independent news outlets. And that's probably what the future for journalism is, that there's a proliferation of all these smaller media outlets and the aggregate of all of that news becomes part of the mainstream news as well. I think we're seeing the industry reconfigure. And it's if you look at the car industry and the computer industry... As comparisons, you know, in 1920, there were 300 and something car manufacturers in the United States. By 1950, there were five. Same with computers. In 1980, there were dozens, and I can't remember the exact figure, but there were hundreds of computer manufacturers. By 2000, I think, there were five you know, and, and every computer in the world just about was being made in a complex in, in China. This isn't to say this is wrong or right, but new industries st- start off fragmented and we're in that really exciting phase where independent media is fragmented and it's, it's a good thing. And it's not pushed by vested interests at the moment. When you look at who owns the newspapers... Rupert Murdoch has 60% of his money is in oil. So the climate denialism makes sense. Kerry Stokes is a miner and he owns Channel 7. Gina Reinhart tried owning Channel 10 for a few years. It's now owned by CBS, the American broadcasters, who are interested in a large concentrated media 
so it, it becomes very interesting as to what is the media telling you and who is who is it telling you to again this isn't to deny the good work that all of these uh, firms do from time to time but it's also to point out that we're not getting told the whole story all the time no we're not being told the whole story at all and that's the result of having 80-90% of media ownership in the hands of a, of a few people that are traditionally anti-Labor, they're traditionally pro-Liberal and National Party forces as well. So it's, it's incredibly difficult for Labor, whether they're in government or whether they're in opposition, it's very difficult to proceed with their agenda. But especially coming from the position of opposition, it's almost impossible. And that's why the Labor Party at the moment and Anthony Albanese, their leader, they need to look at alternatives for how do they circumvent this whole process of mainstream media being largely owned by people that are totally against them. And new strategies need to be implemented. It's not easy. I'm not suggesting that it's a, it's a very easy process to go through, but something else needs to happen because whatever they're doing right now, it just doesn't seem to be working. Now, just one final issue that we're looking at. New South Wales schools, they're going to be fully opened up as of next week. It was meant to be a stage process, but we've only we've only had stage one, and then all of a sudden there were no other stages. What's going on here, David? I don't know. I think it's stupid. I think whoever is responsible for the decision should be sacked. Schools are not safe. I don't care what the Prime Minister says. He is wrong. Schools are just as prone to spread the disease as any other enclosed space. I think partly it is his dislike of the Teachers' Federation. I think partly it is to appease some people who've been impatient. I think partly it is his lack of knowledge or concern. And I think that the New South Wales Premier... Gladys Berejiklian has been derelict in her duty. She clearly isn't up to the job. She stood up to him a little bit, but when it got to this type of thing, to open the schools back to five days per week, and in fact we saw yesterday Riverview School had to close yesterday because somebody there has COVID-19. Now, I hope they get better very quickly. And it seems that nobody else has caught it yet, and that's a great thing. But how many schools are going to shut next week because of this or the week after more likely? And it's not fair on teachers to say, yes, we're gone from one day a week and they've spent weeks and done a really magnificent job in getting online going, as far as I can tell. I have no doubt that there were some hiccups and that there were some things and, and some kids don't suit it as well as other kids. And those are challenges that can be met, even though it'll take some time. To then say, no, you've, you've done three weeks of this, now we're going back, I think is a slap in the face to teachers. And I really think teachers should go out on strike on a safety issue so they get full pay. That will show them.
I guess it also gets back to other factors related to COVID-19 management as well, like the whole push for various states to open up their borders. Now, there's border control in West Australia, South Australia, Queensland and Tasmania. But so far, most of the political pushback has been directed towards Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland and Mark McGowan in West Australia. Coincidentally, they are both run by Labor governments. And, of course... Dan Andrews. And all of those governments have done very well. They stood up against the vested interests. They kept their borders closed. And Anastasia Palaszczuk, of course, had to work very hard with people in remote Queensland communities who are saying, we don't have it here. Why do we need to socially distance? And I, I get it. If you're 800 kilometres from Townsville, say, why would you? But it's for the good of everybody. And I, I do really wish I could say Gladys Berejiklian had done as good a job. She hasn't, and she's not. As a proud New South Welshman, you know, I want New South Wales to be the leading state in this stuff, but we're not. It's been adequate, mostly. It's been adequate till yesterday where it suddenly collapsed in a shambles. Uh, Steve Marshall in Western, in sorry, South Australia, the Liberal, you know, they've done very, very well. They socially distanced, they kept everything locked down, and now they're pretty much free of it and could now start to think about easing restrictions, which is a really remarkable and really uh, admirable achievement. Well, that's absolutely fantastic as well. But it's also gets back to the political machinations that are going on within the background. So there are those border controls in quite a few states, but it seems like only the Labor premiers are being singled out here. But And that's not just from the federal government or key members of the federal government. It's in the mainstream media as well. So there needs to be consistency with all of this. But it's essentially what those Labor leaders have been saying is that thank you very much for your advice, but we'll decide what's best for our community. And that's the way that it has to be. Exactly. Our lives more important than money. And that's what it's gone down to. That's it for this new politics podcast. Don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in and you can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. I'm Eddie Djokovic and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Listener.